thought it might be a good time for us to <clears throat> do a little reflecting on what happens when we are saved. Um, and thinking of this, so the kind of theology I do is technically called systematic theology. That's really just a kind of fancy way of saying um, I am one of those people who is interested in how each doctrine sort of connects with another, the implications of one doctrine connect with the others. So um, the question of salvation is one question where that kind of endeavor becomes really important because how we believe we are justified um, has a lot to do with how we think we're supposed to behave now while we're being sanctified and what we think our destiny is when we are united with God in the new heavens and new earth, when we are glorified, we experience glorification. So that's what I I want us to think about. Um, Just a little summary of where we've been and what we've said. Um, One thing I tell my undergrads is kind of a little cheat sheet for thinking about what happens when Christ is born and ministers and dies and is raised. Um, We can think about Christ's life and ministry as dealing with the problem of evil. We can think about Christ's death as dealing with the problem of sin. And then we can think about um, Christ's resurrection as dealing with the problem of death. And that's a way of thinking of, and that's, those are scriptural terms that's kind of pulling together a lot of the different um, affirmations that are made in scripture. But I also want to say you have to be careful that you don't walk down on that too narrowly because obviously there are ways in which Christ's death deals with evil and that sort of thing, right? So, but, but just kind of broadly and kind of roughly speaking, I think we could think of, okay, so let's think about this. Christ's life or ministry is all about ushering in the kingdom of God. And that is in conflict with the powers of evil. So, you know, you can see that really clearly in Luke 4, 18 through 19, what this is all about. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this is what Jesus is all about. This is what it looks like when God's kingdom shows up. And the powers of evil, um, the imperial powers, the powers that enslave us are in direct conflict with this kind of reign, the, the reign of God, right? They want to reign. They don't want God to reign. They don't want these things to happen. So uh, Christ's ministry, his very life is in conflict with the powers. That conflict leads to the cross. Now, when Christ dies, his death deals with sin. Um, this is a, probably the most complicated part of the story in terms of what it, when we're trying to parse out what Scripture's picture is here. Um, it's something I feel that I'm still learning about. I'm still reading and trying to understand the great... I mean, this is such a great mystery. But so far, what I think I've found most useful, and I'm always you know, I'm interested to hear what Mark and George have to say here too, but um, I think... We have to remember all the language of atonement, Christ's death is an atoning sacrifice, needs to be held together with the fact that it occurs at Passover. So the context of Passover for the crucifixion, interestingly, it wasn't the Feast of Atonement when, he, when this occurred. Um, there's something, I think, very poignant about the fact that he himself interprets his death at the Passover meal that he's sharing, right? So there's this... I think we have to see the liberatory aspect as kind of at the forefront here. And what I mean by that is, 
Um, when Jews are celebrating Passover, they're celebrating God freeing them from powers that enslaved them. Um, the, obviously, the powers of Egypt, right? But um, there's a, you know, they also had come to associate exile with uh, being the result of sin. The enslavement in Egypt was not the result of sin, but when, you, when you're enslaved in Babylon as exiles, they, they understood that as a result of faithlessness, right? And so there's a way in which um, being freed from exile, I think there's this really kind of amazing merging here of we're being freed from the penalty of our sin, but we're also being freed from powers that enslave us. And the fundamental paradigm here, I think, is liberation. Liberation from powers that enslave. So um, I think that's really helpful when we think about what forgiveness of sins is all about. Um, We are being ransomed from enslavement to powers of death. Christ is the suffering servant who is faithful to the covenant on Israel's behalf and fulfills it. But um, he's also the new Adam. Because of that, he redefines what it means to be human. So he's faithful on behalf of all of humanity and thus can bring us into a new relationship with God that enables the outpouring of the Spirit, right? This new intimacy with God. Okay, and then the resurrection obviously uh, overcomes the powers of death. And we see uh, in Christ's resurrected body a type of what is to come, the first fruits of the rest of the harvest, um, what we get to look forward to. Those who belong to Christ will be raised as he was. Then we have the ascension, and I always say that's a really important part of the story we don't want to leave out because, you know, a lot of us tend to think about um, this image of Christ rising as going to heaven, and kind of we think of him like, well, that must mean heaven's up there somewhere, and that's where we're going to go when we die, but the image, and again, I'm like, New Testament scholars help me out here, but um, as I understand it, the image of him rising is all about affirming his status as Lord of creation, as Lord over all. Yes, he goes to the Father's right hand, but heaven, God's realm, isn't up there in the clouds somewhere. It's where God is you know, fully present, and that's an overlapping reality with where we are, and someday it will be fully, fully wed, right? That's the promise we have. In the end, the new heavens and new earth, there'll be this union of heaven and earth and this kind of marriage ceremony. So um, God is omnipresent is the point I'm trying to make, and Christ is omnipresent. And now he ascends as new human, and in that sense, uh, that's sort of like the, the kind of climactic moment of him sealing the deal as the new Adam, the one who's redefining what it means to be human. Um, okay, so let's see. Now, the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost is the harvest of all of this work. Um, we should remember that the Spirit who empowers Christ's ministry, uh, who is uh, the, the power of the one who raises him from the dead, is also given to us, right? And so now we have um, this marvelous event of salvation that we need to think of in, you know, largely, I would say, um, three different, it's kind of having three different tenses, a past, a present, and a future. So if you look at the chart on the handout, i got a copy of it here. Um, roughly speaking, we can think about the past tense as justification, the present tense as sanctification, and the future tense as glorification. Um, I have a little note down there at the bottom the, the language here, those, those kind of technical terms of justification, sanctification, glorification, 
a lot of that language is used kind of fluidly in the New Testament, so it's better not to, again, kind of like thinking about which aspect of Christ defeats what thing. Like, I, I wouldn't want to lock down on this too narrowly, but it's useful as like a kind of teaching apparatus, and that's the way it's usually used. So, um, so I want to think a little bit about um, the nature of each of these, and then if we have time, we can look at the chart and think about how this happens um, on individual levels, but also communal and even at a cosmic level. You know, we, this is happening on all these different levels. Okay, so um, what happens when we are justified? This is actually a really contentious issue. Maybe not so much in Churches of Christ, but if you start talking to your friends who are Reformed, um, you might find that you have a, lot, a very different set of assumptions, a very different set of uh, lenses that you bring to Scripture. So I think that's a, in some ways, that kind of tension we can have with fellow Christians is healthy. It calls us back to the text. It calls us back to understanding why we say what we say, trying to understand what actually happened, what, what is this gift we have been given. Okay, so um, the way I understand this is um, when we are justified, there is this liberatory rebirth of our enslaved nature, and that happens because of what has been accomplished in Christ. So let's look at um, the passage I have on your handout, the Romans 3 passage, and will someone read that for us? I'm going to give my voice a break here for a second. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in, or of, Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Thank you, Rachel. Okay, so what does this disclose? Um, some things we can say that are kind of key elements of the understanding of justification. One, um, it is an act of God's righteousness that can also be translated as faithfulness. Um, God is faithful to the covenant. God is faithful to his promises. He promised to see the, the flourishing of these people, right, because Christ comes as Israel. Um, God is true to his promises to Israel and through Israel to bless all people. So justification happens because of God's goodness and faithfulness to work on our behalf. And because of this, we have each been declared just, which is another way of saying um, in the right or acquitted, uh, freed from the penalty of sin. Now, again, remember, um, the penalty of sin in Israel's understanding is enslavement and exile. Um, and that, of course, the the great um, sadness that comes with exile, being away from one's home, is not just a kind of homesickness, but it's also being away from the, the place that has been a promised inheritance where you're going to be able to worship God fully and freely. So this is all about being able to worship, being able to have intimacy with God. Um, so we've been set free from this enslavement to sin, which is the, the penalty of which is death, 
and our exile, our, um, might say, estrangement from God. We've been set free from all of that because of our union with Christ, uh, because of his humanity, his act of taking up the human experience into the very life of God. That's how I understand this. And that this act is grounded in God's grace. Um, it is freely bestowed. It's unmerited. God's love has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And uh, it's also important that, to note that we receive this grace through faith. So um, that leads us to this next question of what happens as we are sanctified. So sanctification is, um, well, um, maybe I should pause. Do you all have questions about anything I just said about justification? There's a lot here we could unpack. If you want to just kind of keep thinking and we can pause for questions, that'll be fine. Or George could ask me something really difficult. <laughs> it's coming. I can tell he's right. He's making notes. <laughs> okay. Okay. We'll keep going. Um, sanctification is uh, this process of living into what we have been declared to be. So uh, this progressive ongoing process of renewal and metamorphosis, so to speak, into the image of Christ. Um, I think the point here that I, I want to try to, you know, make sure that we're all hearing and, and I, I always try to remind myself of is that God not only forgives us, but transforms us and enables us for a new way of life. But there's an activity on our end that we, we have to get involved in this, right? We receive it by faith and we uh, have to act on our faith. We have to actually live into this gift. This is why 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 says that God has freed us from sin and enslaved us to righteousness. That language is maybe a little odd to us because we hear, wait, I thought we were freed from enslavement. Why is this language of enslavement coming up? But I think what we have to hear there is we've been taken away from being given over to one thing and now we've been given over to this other thing. And this, the irony here is that our being given over to this is what's going to lead to our true freedom. So I think that's, uh, that's an important piece here as well. Uh, Galatians 5.25 says, Since we live in the Spirit, let us keep step with the Spirit. It's an interesting way of thinking of it as well, right? The, uh, the Spirit is the one who's empowering us, and yet we have to keep step. We have to kind of keep up. We have to try to do our part um, to live in, in keeping with this gift that we've been given. Okay, so... Um, to think a little more about this, let's look at Titus 3, 3 through 8. That's also in the handout. And if someone will read that for us, please. When we are still everyone's fear, let us pray, passing our days in malice and envy, hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This Spirit he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is sure. I desire that you insist on these things, so that those who have come to believe and die may carefully may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable to everyone. <clears throat> Thank you. Okay, so this gives us a really rich picture, I think, of 
what we've left behind and what we're supposed to be up to right now. Uh, what have we left behind? We've left behind being defined by our sin. Um, our sin here, the way this is explicated, is it's missing the mark of what it means to be fully human. Uh, we're inclined to be selfish when we're in sin. We're inclined to be self-indulgent, um, to create our own world, you might say, to put our trust in what is of this world. But God, by contrast, is others-centered um, and calls us out of ourselves and our craving for power or security or control and um, calls us towards uh, being others-oriented as well. So in the biblical epistles, I think it's really important to remember that being devoted to good works, that language, good works, um, this is about being devoted to a life of sanctification, a life devoted to others. Um, it's not just some sort of stuffy, moralistic, the way some of us might hear when we hear good works, kind of this association with getting it right, kind of a works righteousness idea. It's very far from that. Um, the idea is to, to live in such a way that this kind of other's orientation is clear. And I think um, this is probably, I mean, where else are we so well reminded of this except for the fact that we're drawn into a community when we are saved. We're not saved as little, you know, uh, automatons running around doing our own thing. Um, we're saved as members of a body. Uh, we're baptized into Christ's body, and this is a very deeply communal image, right? Um, that we participate in one Lord, one spirit, one baptism. This stresses the common dependence that we all have on one head, who is Christ. I think it also stresses our interdependence on one another, right? Paul's very clear about that, um, that we all have different purposes in the body and that when one member of the body hurts, everyone hurts, right? That it's, we can't just do this on our own without each other. Um, so that we are given to each other, I think, is such an important piece here. I think this is a lot harder for us um, than it is for people in cultures that aren't so steeped in individualism. But our culture is so teaches us to think of ourselves so much in terms of who we are apart from others that it's hard for us to think of ourselves sometimes, I think, as our identity is first a communal one, that who we are is first, uh, well, I'm a member of the body of Christ, right? That's who I am first and foremost. I think that's, that's hard for us. We, that takes a kind of discipline of thought, right? Um, and it takes a regular, I mean, you know, Mark highlighted a lot of this stuff last week, um, a regular attending to the fact that communing with each other in these ways that we're doing right now is so important, but also just paying attention to what it means to be the church and finding ways to be, um, you know, actively doing this work together, not thinking of this as just a work that I do, but a work that we're doing together, thinking, thinking communally about our mission. And um, the church being an others-centered community makes sense in light of the fact that God is others-centered and the community's mission is to image God. So it's, it's interesting. It's like we're given to each other here and then we're supposed to go out and be given to the world as well, right? Um, so all this to say, uh, we're not only saved from enslavement to sin, but we're also liberated and given over to the Spirit who empowers us for good works, for holiness, for an ongoing, continual progression in holiness. Uh, now, sometimes it doesn't work that way for us. I, you know, I always tell my students, you may not always feel like you're progressing. I know I don't. Sometimes I feel like I'm two steps forward, three steps back, right? 
But the point is that this is the power we've been given, that we can progress, that we can, um, we can <coughs> repent, we can be empowered to be reformed, we can keep getting more and more mature in Christ. And interestingly, I think, um, we should remember that even Christ matured, even though he didn't have to mature in, in some sense of coming out of sin. You know, Scripture tells us that he did grow. And so I think that helps us to remember this is a journey of, of the journey of growth is a natural one. We shouldn't expect to stay, to have it all figured out right when we get baptized, for example. We should expect to mature in our holiness. Okay, and then... Um, Kind of keeping trucking along. I expect you feel free to raise your hand and inter- interrupt me. Yeah. Uh, I just had a thought uh, back to something I read. You talked about connection between Passover and Christ's death to remove our sins. Uh, I read, maybe it was right, uh, into right, I don't know, uh, that when the Israelites left Egypt and went through the Red Sea, that was a baptism. Mm-hmm. Um, that was part of Passover at some point. Yeah, I think that to connect not just the Passover meal, the communion that we receive with Passover, but also baptism is a really interesting thing, especially because um, when you read the early Christian um, reflections on baptism, some some that aren't preserved in the New Testament, but they're just a little bit later, like in this early period of Christianity, uh, they very much connected baptism with going through floodwaters or the waters coming out of Egypt, this idea of God bringing people to new creation and new life towards a promised inheritance, it was this very rich symbol. And I, I might have shared this with you all already, but they even had, uh, where, when they had enough money to, to do this sort of thing, they would have these baptismal fonts shaped in the shape of a womb and with the idea that you would enter into the waters of literally something like a womb and come up as new people. So, yeah, it's really, I mean, it was just such a rich... Uh, layered understanding of baptism that, again, I think, man, we could really do with returning to some of this and really mining it, you know, that we we do well to think about baptism as a forgiveness, but this is about an entirely new creation, right? It's about new creation. Okay, so the womb, if you talk to somebody about baptism, they'll typically, you'll talk about the, when, it, I, I think it's Jesus who said, if you're not born of water and of spirit, and many Baptists would, would say that born of water is actually of the womb. Is that, is there any? That sounds like a question for George and Mark. George they, they always the insist that that's like a natural birth, is the point. Yeah, is yeah. That, what's the word? What's the well, I, I like the born of water being, it could refer to physical birth, but why would you have to say you have to be Born. Yeah, everybody. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to say that. So it's got to be baptism. Okay. <laughs> that sounds like a good answer. <laughs> you know, Lauren, uh, in first century rabbinical teachings, they talk about you know, and the Jews did have a baptism for uh, proselyte people who were converted to Judaism. But the debate in, in Jesus' time was that when someone is born again. Can they, because they're a new creation, can they now marry their mother? That was a debate. What do you think about that, Randall? <laughs> <laughs> Just because that's all they did all day long. <laughs> uh, well, 
you know, I, I think that um, the the kind of, we talked about, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, about the kind of ceremonial washings that they would regularly engage in, but for the sense of being pure enough to engage in this kind of, the, the life that God had given to them by way of the law for the sake of being reconciled. But the idea of this one washing being necessary, and that's it, and it's by being baptized into Christ for this entirely new um, new identity, and it's a one-and-done one and thing, you don't have to do it multiple times, had to be a hard thing for them to comprehend. And that new, the fact that the, there, was, there were debates like this reminds us that um, the kind, like, why would it take so long for, for Christ's disciples to understand so much of what he was about, right? Uh, so it's, it's fascinating to think about, but the, the language of baptism and the imagery of it, I think, is one that we should do much more um, to connect with the fact that we are entering into a newness of life. And, I, you know, I also am thinking part of what I would say about why it's not just about being born, from, you know, originally uh, it's because we're following Christ into the water, right? We're, he is baptized as an adult before he begins his ministry um, in solidarity with Israel, who's turning from sin. So that's what we're doing. We're saying we're part of that same movement, right? And that we're um, asking for the same forgiveness, but also the same vocation, the same orientation towards mission. We want the same Holy Spirit to anoint us that anointed him. Okay, so um, when we think towards glorification, this is the future towards which we are being made new. Um, it is the completion of our salvation, and it's where we look forward to being bodily resurrected, uh, fully conformed to the image of Christ, fully animated by God's Spirit. So um, we see this past, present, and future vision of salvation here. Uh, we have been set free from enslavement to sin and death. Um, we have been enslaved or given over to God uh, towards holiness. And then there's this future tense, which is eternal life. I mean, you see this kind of the tense being played out in Romans 6.22, which I believe I've also included here. Um, yeah, this is right above the where I start the chart. That you have been set free from sin, past tense, have become slaves to God, present, and the result that we're moving towards the future is holiness that leads to eternal life. So there are tenses. Um, we have been saved. Our being saved will be saved. And um, I think beyond the tenses of salvation, we have to think about these scopes, the personal, communal, and cosmic. So I want to say just a bit about them and then um, happy to pause for anything my colleagues have to say here. Um, but... On the personal or individual level, and you can kind of refer to the chart here, just some, just some like preliminary thoughts that are sketched here about what happens you know, in the past, so to speak, when we're justified on the personal level, but then also the communal and cosmic. Um, so at the personal level, what does it mean to be saved? Uh, well, when we're justified, we talked about this, right? This is uh, liberation from the powers, forgiveness of sins, the liberation that leads to regeneration. The Spirit is poured out, uh, is present to all flesh. And I think the key there is to remember that everyone is offered membership in this family, the family of God. Um, so we accept that gift through faith, through baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. 
And then um, on the individual level, we move into sanctification, um, acknowledging that we're in this progressive process into godliness, into Christ-likeness. Um, the Spirit is at work in us. Um, this, uh, you know, I always want to emphasize that sanctification is really where you see the Spirit kind of playing a lead note. When you think about the, tr- uh, the Trinitarian sort of economy of salvation, um, the Father is the one who sends, the, Spirit, the, the Son is the one who enacts, and then the Spirit is the one who perfects, so to speak. Okay, so um, there's this maturation process happening here. Um, and then, you know, we're thinking about this vocation. We talked about, I would want to just say, we, we need to revisit Philippians 2, 1 through 11. I'm like, what are we trying to be formed into? We're trying to be formed into the, the mind, the likeness, the likeness of Christ, which is to have this mind, this mindset of being given over to God's purposes fully, not self-important, serving others, serving God's purposes in the world. And then um, what does our glorification look like? Well, our resurrection, the saving of the whole person, uh, union with God, perfecting in the spirit, fully conformed to Christ, the head of the church. Okay, on the communal level, what does it look like? Um, at the time of justification, the, there is a kind of communal liberation from the powers of evil. Um, and we see this at Pentecost when the spirit inaugurates this new community, a new egalitarian community, actually. Um, the spirit is poured out upon all, not just the male leaders of Israel and not just free persons, but uh, free and slave, male and female, right? There's no discrimination now all are brought in and all can be ministers. And there is a, a oneness here. What unites us is the fact that the community is rooted in the spirit that brings us in rela- into relationship with the Trinity. Um, on the communal level, sanctification means the healing of divisions among people. This is the work we're supposed to be about as the church. Uh, we're being shaped and conformed to the image of Christ. And um, the spirit is active in the community. And we have to keep step with the Spirit, right? We have to do our part. We have to work towards being reconciled with each other and um, being the presence of God's love in the world. Um, So the church is to be like this new Edenic temple, the site of reconciliation with God and humanity. So we should grow together in our willingness to suffer, in our discipleship, to continually explore God's word, uh, and to serve to serve others. Um, and then in terms of glorification, the community looks forward to this eschatological gathering. Fancy way of just saying what's going to happen. We see pictures of this in Revelation, right? That we gather together around the throne and we finally get to be to live without all that keeps us in conflict here. Uh, so we look forward to this wonderful kind of consummation of communal intimacy. And then on the cosmic scope, um, We look forward to the whole creation being saved. Uh, It's already been liberated. It's being liberated. It will be liberated. It's kind of one way to think of this. We should remember Romans 8, 19 through 23. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So 
you hear that language there that we've already been adopted, but we're going to be adopted. Like there's this kind of, we're living towards this reality that's going to be consummated. And the creation itself is longing for this. So I think we can think of in the past, what's already happened, um, new creation has been inaugurated. You really see this with the resurrection, right? Um, the, the earth is no longer hopelessly subject to the wages of death, to, to futility. Um, although it may feel that way, because still, we still have this, this curse is still at work, right? We talked about this, about how um, God has won the battle and the war is being kind of played out, right? Uh, the key battle has been fought and the war is still kind of unfolding. Um, in terms of present tense, how is what's happening in terms of the cosmic scope? I think um, we can think about this especially in light of the church's duty to be transformative. Again, I think Mark did a nice job highlighting a lot of the ways that we've seen the church has made a massive difference in the world. The church has made a massive difference to world history and how it's played out. Again, it's easy for us to be maybe forgetful of this or complacent about it, but when you kind of start learning about some of this history, it's just remarkable um, to think about what the world would be like right now if the church had not existed. So, um, yeah, there's lots more to say there, but I think we can think of this in terms of also um, our responsibility to care for the creation itself, uh, to remember that, that we're told to proclaim the good news to the whole creation. It's interesting, right, that language. And then um, this is so, so we should pay attention to what it means not just to address um, spiritual but also physical needs of, of others. So uh, it's very much part of God's work to address uh, addiction or sickness or homelessness, right? All the, all the physical things that Christians have always been all about addressing the whole person. Uh, okay, and then this is also um, this new heavens and new earth, the glorification of the creation is what we look forward to. Okay, I think I've left at least a couple minutes for any further commentary. Yeah, I have a few things to ask about and to get your help thinking through. Because I, I think that the bottom right column of that chart, that the, the, the overall goal is new heavens and new earth, changes a lot of how at least I was taught to think about what Jesus did on the cross it, I mean, it really is a game changer in a lot of ways that that I'd love for us to spell out some. Um, so to me, I, I call it we move the goalposts. You know, we've moved, to me, the goalposts used to be going to heaven when we die. And so the way we set up that whole story, and so the way we've been doing this whole class of how do we set up the story is important for that. Because if the story is set up to where God is perfect and he created us to be perfect and our sin makes us imperfect so he can't we can't be in his presence and so he needs to figure out a way for us to be in his presence so that we can go to heaven when we die so Jesus lives a perfect life dies on the cross and God doesn't see us he sees Jesus and so we are perfect and so we get to be with Jesus um, and that leads to some I, I think some problematic ways of understanding the cross where Jesus is getting in the way of God's wrath, just wrath against us. And so Jesus is our shield against God. Um, and and I'm, I definitely know that are some people just in popular culture who see the gospel 
and critique the gospel because that's what it sounds like we're saying, that Jesus saved us from God. Uh, but as you, what I like about this way of framing it is, no, God is the one sending Jesus, you know, and um, I think about uh, a couple songs that we have in our worship uh, list now, uh, which I really like the songs, and I, I have a lot of grace for songwriters, and I, I sing a lot of bad theology because I just like the song. <laughs> I've always done that, and I, I have colleagues who... At, at chapel or something will, will, will not sing and I'll be like why don't you sing that well I don't agree with the theology that I'm like well I'm going to go ahead and sing it and I'm just going to know in my mind I have a head canon you know that kind of fixes all the problems but I'm not going to sing it but uh, there's a song that says the father turns his face away um, how great the father's love for us you know what is that is that communicating that you know where does that come from um doesn't it say that about Jesus? That God turned his face from Jesus? I, I, now, I could be wrong. Uh, and I, let's get the wisdom of the class. I don't think it does. Now, I think it may come from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is, I went a lot of my life not realizing Jesus was quoting a psalm. <laughs> he wasn't just saying that. He's quoting a Psalm 22, which is a lament psalm. And I think it's more about the suffering of the, you know, I think Jesus on the cross is taking on the consequences of our sins. The consequences. Which isn't, um, is it separation from God? or, or it's, it's more for us than it is for God, right? It's not that he's trying to change God's, love, God's view of us. He's helping... Um, and this is hard for me to articulate, but he's, he's helping us be pure so that we can be, do what God wants us to do. So that gets all, all the way back to uh, the Passover and, and maybe even the Day of Atonement idea of what was the Old Testament sacrificial system about. And I've gotten this from N.T. Wright, who quotes Old Testament scholars. I haven't read those Old Testament scholars. I have talked to the Old Testament scholars I know at Lipscomb, and they agree with what he says they say. Uh, so this is a little bit secondhand for me. But that, that sacrifice is more about purity than it is about sin. So it's a, it's a purification so that we can be God's people and God can dwell among us and we can do the thing. So if we set up the whole story where God creates a covenant of works, basically, that we have to be perfect, and we're not perfect, and he has to punish us, and he's angry at us, and, and there's another song where we say, you know, the wrath of God was satisfied, that is problematic, I think, but, um, you know, he's, he is angry at what the consequences of sin are in our lives, but he's not angry at, at us as people. Um, so, instead of a covenant of Works. It's a covenant of vocation where we He has called us to be this, to for God's will to be done on earth the way it's done in heaven. Uh, so it's not about getting my sins forgiven so I can go to heaven when I die. It's about empowerment to live the way that God wants us to live. And Jesus has taken on the consequences of sin on the cross, and through our faith in Him, that gives us the power to do the things that God wants us to do. 
Um, and Mark, I usually quote you something that you said. You may not remember, but maybe you do. And if you do, you can say instead of me quoting you. You use a, an example of maybe a parent taking on the consequences of their children's sin as a kind of an example of explaining the cross. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we do this all the time. Our kids make mistakes, uh, and we kind of have to fix that. Uh, and that's 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 what we do. So I, I don't remember saying anything. Like this. You said, but I'm sure I did. You said something about you know, let's say you have a child who's an addict or something, and yeah. So you you say, come back and live in our house, and we'll. You know, you you suffer. You you take yeah. the suffering that the con- that that's your child's consequences have created because of your love. I've said, I've said that many times. So that, that's that's part of suffering as a Christian is yeah. we take on everybody else's mm-hmm. those in our lives yeah. uh, punishments. Well, how they're being punished. Really, these are kind of natural consequences mm-hmm. that yeah. they are suffering. It's not like God is saying, "Well, you do bad. I'm going to make you addicted now," or something like that. Yeah. We, we find our way into that, and then somebody else can come along and help you get out of that. Yeah. Um, Lauren, what do you think about the father turns his face away? I think it's bad theology. <laughs> um, I agree that it. what we have is God becoming like us and accepting what it means to be broken, and it even experience a kind of anxiety and, and grief that comes along with death and but then by way of entering into that fully remaking it and being able to bring that even that experience into the life of God as the way that it's redeemed yeah yeah Mark yeah we uh, there has to be punishment but it's like our punishment of our children I think call it discipline is probably a better word uh, but we cannot let them destroy themselves and so there are punishments they don't like at all. Uh, you will be grounded, you, know, you will do this, you will work to be paid for whatever. Uh, but that is never because we've turned our backs on our kids. It is because we love them so much that there has to be, sorry, there has to be some kind of discipline for evil. Uh, it has to be uh, uh, exercised from them. And uh, that's, that's what we do as as Christians, we go about trying to do that throughout the world. To take on other people's yeah. problems because we love them. Mm-hmm. And I think God's like that good father or mother. And, and the reason we want our kids to do better is because we know what's best for their life. It's not just an arbitrary, that's wrong. So uh, the covenant of vocation means... Our sin has caused us not to be able to do what God wants us to do for the world. And so the cross is a thing that helps us uh, do the things that we need to do. Not just so we can go to heaven when we die, but so that um, God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think that's helpful. Anybody have a last comment on that or something that occurred to you? Okay, I know we're about out of time. Thank you for being here.